Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This is Success is brought to you by Trinet, human resources that know your business. For Steve Case, this is success. It's how do you make sure you are doing everything you can to make the world a better place and try to kind of lift up as many people and communities as possible. From Business Insider, I'm Rich Baloney. When Case was in college, he read a book that said a digital revolution was coming. It seemed like a ridiculous idea at the time, but it stuck with him. A little over a decade later, he helped bring about that new age as the founding CEO of America Online. He left AOL in 2005, but his career was far from over. Now, he's focused on driving what he calls the third wave of the internet. And through his venture capital firm, Revolution, he's betting on companies outside of Silicon Valley to make it happen. He's calling it the rise of the rest. It's a massive undertaking that echoes some of the vision he had back in the 80s as a fledgling tech entrepreneur. One of the things I was really passionate about with those early days in the 80s and 90s and trying to basically make the internet part of everyday life was leveling the playing field in terms of access to information. When I was, you know, growing up, there was basically three TV networks, and you know, maybe in in, in your town, there's one, sometimes two newspapers, but there weren't a lot of diversity of voices, and you didn't really have a way to kind of get your voice out there. I didn't think that was helpful, and similarly, uh, it was harder to compete with some of the bigger brands in the in the shop and commerce you know, space. So the idea of the internet was kind of leveling the playing field and giving everybody access to information, education, commerce, reviews, whatever whatever it might be. And that we felt was tremendously empowering. You know, uh, the rise of rest is similar. Now it's leveling the playing field in terms of opportunity. How do you make sure everybody really has a shot? Uh, and so even though they're very different you know, ideas and they're separated by more than three decades, to me, they are kind of similar. It's and, kind of uh, come full the, circle. The, 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 a little bit full circle. So as an entrepreneur who has this passion for high growth startups, are you one of those people who is through and through an entrepreneur like you knew that from the point you were a kid? Yeah, pretty much. I, I didn't when I was a kid. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I only got heard of the word, but I, I, the idea of starting little businesses and, and trying to you know, create new things and see new possibilities and and you know, it's kind of always intrigued me. And so I, I guess I was wired to you know be more entrepreneurial, which is you know kind of a little bit unusual because you know my family is was not particularly entrepreneurial. My father was a lawyer 
worked for the same law firm for 60 years. My mom was a teacher. And so when I was pursuing some of these entrepreneurial ventures, particularly in the early days of AOL when it didn't look like we were necessarily going to make it, I, I, they're they're fairly anxious about that, and you know. So it's but it is something about it that intrigued me. So you came from a background where it was more like maybe this is a bad idea. Like why don't you just go like a traditional path in finance? Yes, yeah, some of that, like that. Some of that. And I'd say I grew up in in Hawaii, and Hawaii, like many parts of the country, is a wonderful place, but tends to be a little cautious, a little risk averse. That fearlessness, that sense of possibility that does you know, exist in places like Silicon Valley doesn't exist in many parts of the country and didn't certainly exist where I was uh, growing up. So some of it may have been just a broader cultural you know, kind of dynamic. Uh, but also, I think with, in terms of my family, it was more of a the comfort zone was more kind of working for more traditional you know, companies. And I actually did when I, when I graduated from college in 1980. I had already decided I wanted to get into this internet thing because I had read some things in the late 70s about, you know, kind of teletext and videotext, interactive TV and, and online services. And a bunch of people were trying different different things out uh, and sort of early versions of interactive uh, you know, service. So I knew that's something I wanted to do. But when I was graduating, there really wasn't a way to do it. There was not really any consumer internet companies to go to because it didn't yet really exist. And there really wasn't much of a startup culture back then. So the idea of kind of doing my own thing just really wasn't kind of on the table. So I think probably my, my parents were thought it was awesome when I went to work for Procter & Gamble, a company they had great respect for. A little bit less awesome than when I went to work for Pizza Hut and much less awesome when I left the Fortune 500 world or the crazy kind of startup world. In fact, you know, the first thing I joined in 1983 when I moved to Washington, D.C., ended up failing. It was unsuccessful. So it was a kind of a wake-up call that, you know, startups are risky. Uh, you, know, you know, some obviously are successful, many fail. And so it was, uh, you know, it was part of you know, my journey. I think it's a part of most entrepreneurs' journey. So if you didn't grow up in a culture very much like, yeah, go out, like take these huge risks, like just follow your dream, like just go do this, where did that come from? Was that just something that was innate in you, or did you have like a, a, a turning point? I'm not sure. I, I, I think, I guess there was a turning point when I, in in this early 1980s time frame, I just became mesmerized by the idea of the internet. I'd read a book back then, I think it was 1979, by Alvin Toffler called The Third Wave, and, and he which wrote you named it, your, which your I, book, you know, I read in my when I wrote a book, I named it Third Wave, and you know, thankfully he was uh, still alive at the time. He's since passed away, and part of my, my uh, you know, the, even the introduction of the book was really acknowledging the, the kind of critical role he played and in, in kind of guiding my, my thinking. I read his book, and he had talked about the kind of agricultural revolution, and then that was followed by the Industrial Revolution, and what he was predicting is the third wave is going to be the technology revolution, the digital revolution, which, of course, now we take for granted. But when he wrote that in you know, the late 1970s, so four decades ago, uh, it was you know, kind of a crazy idea. Um, but I read that, and I knew he was right. I knew it was going to happen. I just knew it. When I was a senior in college and was you know, trying to get a job, I was writing to different you know companies with my my resume and my cover letter basically was predicting the dawn of this digital age <laughs> uh, and I'm sure most people 
thought it was like, who is this this crazy kid? Like, what is he talking about? (laughs) But uh, so most of those letters went unanswered. But uh, definitely it was it was something that was intriguing to me. And and I just thought it would be important. And I wanted to be part of it and wanted to figure out ways to popularize it. And so I became kind of fixated on figuring out some way to break in, some way to you know, kind of have a have a role in this first company I, I went to that ended up failing. That was the bad news. The good news is two of the people I met there and I ended up starting AOL, was then called America Online in in, uh, in 1985. So the even though the startup was a failure, the you know the some of the relationships I forged there and some of the insights we we gleaned there ended up helping in terms of the creation of uh, America Online. When we started AOL in 1985, only three percent of people were online, and they're online an hour a week. And so it was a concept. The reality is people weren't online. Most people didn't think anybody would want to bother getting online. Like, why would, why would somebody go to the trouble of buying a personal computer so they can, like, type a message on a keyboard to somebody <laughs> when, you know, they can just pick up the phone and call somebody? Like, why, that's not going to ever work. And that skepticism was there for more than a decade. It finally, the idea of the internet, you know, kind of took off, and thankfully, at that point, AOL was well positioned and kind of, kind of got America online. And at our peak, about half of all the internet traffic in the United States went through uh, through AOL. But for a decade, most people didn't believe. I have that similar sense, that deja vu sense when I'm talking about the rise of the rest. I recognize a lot of people are skeptical, but we hope to prove them wrong. Yeah, and we believe we will prove them wrong. And they, you know, maybe there is some part of my personality that sort of, a, you know, when people say it can't be done, that's sort of the challenge. And so, okay, well, we'll see about that. Uh, head of AOL, when you were at uh, Quantum Computer Services, so this was your first tech company that you were helping build up. You were saying how that didn't work out well. You were working with Apple, but there was a lot of bumps along the way. Just looking at that experience, what did it teach you ahead of AOL? How did it prepare you for building a company that became huge? Well, the early days of uh, when we started what's now known as AOL in 1985, initially the name was Quantum Computer Services. And the initial strategy, and it was true for the first several years, was essentially to partner with personal computer manufacturers to create custom, almost private label online services for each of them. So that really was our strategy. We didn't have, weren't able to raise much capital. We think our initial venture capital raise was about $1 million. At the time, there was a company called Prodigy backed by IBM and Sears, and they had committed $1 billion to launch Prodigy. So our $1 million was not going to you know, beat the Prodigy $1 billion. So rather than try to compete head-to-head, we decided to kind of have this strategy of partnerships. And so for the first several years, that was how we built the the, you know, the company. It was on the back of these these partnerships. And so they actually worked quite well and, and you know, took us from this you know, startup uh, to actually being a real company. But you know, one of the key partnerships was with Apple. We had licensed their brand name to create this Apple Inc. Uh, you know, service. And not long after launching it, they decided they didn't really like the idea of kind of having some other company use their brand. I don't think they had licensed their brand to anybody else before. I'm not sure they have since. 
so it was frustrating and, and kind of scary because you know we, we thought that was going to be a big part of our growth for the you know, next few years. Uh, but it was clear that Apple was firm about that, and so we negotiated kind of a, a settlement to go our separate ways. And since we couldn't call it Apple Inc. anymore, we said, okay, we need to call it something. And you know, we had a little internal contest, and it ended up being America Online was the, the winning brand. So the challenges of that partnership with Apple kind of led us to have to kind of relaunch as America Online. And, and then over time, you know, that service really got traction, and we ended up you know, kind of changing the company name. And you know, a couple of years later, taking the company you know, public. So, you know, the lesson was those partnerships were critically important to get us going. We would not have been successful without them. But there was a point where we kind of had to kind of stand on our own two feet and and move away from being so reliant on these core partnerships and instead have we had 300 partners at our peak and work with a lot of media companies and computer companies and software companies and communications companies and so have a diverse kind of roster of partners but not be reliant on any one of them. When did you realize that AOL was a huge success? That it the the skeptics were wrong that it actually had become mainstream? It was a easily a decade after we got started. It was probably nineteen ninety five, maybe nineteen ninety six when we and we started nineteen eighty five. So it, you know it, it was a good decade. Even when we went public in nineteen ninety two, it was the first internet company to go public. But nobody really cared. It was not. It didn't get much attention. Or yeah, I think, as I recall, we raised ten million dollars in that IPO, and the market value that day was seventy million dollars. And you know, it was just like some quirky little computer services company, you know, you know, going public. It didn't. It didn't get much attention. But the other one I remember, the date I remember, where it just felt like we had arrived. I guess was in. Uh, I think it was. 1996, we had shifted uh, from kind of charging by the hour to use our service to essentially a flat rate monthly fee for unlimited access. And we knew that would result in a lot more usage, but the amount of usage exceeded our expectation. So we had a huge problem with busy signals. At one point, the whole system was down, I think it was for 23 hours or something. And the fact that AOL was down uh, led the the news for all the networks was one of the lead stories, the headline in almost every newspaper in the country, you know, that AOL was down. And it was striking because it was only a few years before that nobody knew or cared what we were doing. If we'd been down for a month, nobody would have noticed. Suddenly, the fact we were down for a day was this national crisis. And that was because you know, people had embraced the internet and really were relying on it for their email and many other other services. So it went from something that was fringy and viewed by most people as sort of non-essential, maybe even irrelevant, to something that was quite uh, fundamental. And then shortly after that, you started ending up appearing on like magazine cover after magazine cover, like not only. AOL becoming part of the mainstream, but you became like the face of the company. How did that feel to you when that started to happen? It was a little weird. I, I did feel that from the early days, because that people were a little, I wouldn't say scared of the technology, but a little uncertain about the technology in terms of the internet and what it was going to be like. And it just seemed this computer stuff seemed a little forbidden to some people or, or just a little you know scary to people that we needed to you know, make sure that AOL had a friendly face and that everything we did in designing the software and the services were try to make it more engaging, make it you know easier to use, more useful, more fun, more affordable. Part of the reason we even had the 
people signed on, the welcome message of welcome and you've got mail was to make it feel more personal, make it feel more human. And as part of that, I concluded that I needed to kind of be the face of this service and I needed to be kind of like the addition to being the CEO of the company, kind of the mayor of the community. So I'd write you know, letters to our members every month with updates on what was happening, not just with AOL, but more broadly with the evolution of the, uh, the internet. And then I became a more visible spokesperson, not just for AOL, but for the, the medium at large and started getting involved in the late 90s on some policy issues, including you know, as the internet kind of came of age, how do you make sure that you know, the right policies are put in place? So I went from being, you know, kind of relatively unknown to being, you know, quite uh, invisible. We'll be right back after this message. Incredible starts when you have an expert who knows your business. It starts with Trinet, human resources that tailor a strategy for success for small and medium-sized businesses. So no matter what industry you're in, you can grow with confidence. See how Trinet's industry-focused HR can give you more at Trinet.com. Incredible starts here. Trinet. We're back. A few years into his tenure at AOL, Steve Case was leading the digital revolution. It's something I had been thinking about for for many years, and by the time it really took off, it had been 15-plus years from the point where I first became curious about this in 1978, 79, to the point where in the mid-'90s, things really started to take off, and the late-'90s is when things really accelerated. But in some of those early years, it wasn't just the you know, partnership with Apple. We had many other challenges where we'd have to go through layoffs. And there were times where it didn't look like the company was going to survive. So there was near-death experiences. So when AOL became a behemoth like by the end of the 90s, what led to the decision to merge with Time Warner in 2001? It was a bunch of things, some kind of offensive, some defensive. Uh, we b- really did believe that the, the next wave of, of the Internet was going to be broadband. Of course, now that's taken for granted. But in you know, 1999, it was, we were the leader. AOL was the leader by far and was then the dial-up narrowband world. And the market was beginning to transition to higher-speed broadband access. And we needed to be well-positioned for broadband. And so that was part of it, was to make sure we were as well-positioned in the broadband world as we were in the narrowband world. The other reason was more of a a financial diversification point that AOL stock had soared in the 1990s and from going public in in 1992 as 70 million market cap. By the end of the decade, seven, eight years later, it was $160 billion. It was best performing stock of the decade. I think it was up something like 11,000%. And uh, so by merging with Time Warner and our shareholders ended up with a majority of the combined company, instead of having uh, 100% ownership of a company, the AOL alone, I think it was $5 billion of revenue and $1 billion of profit, the combined company with AOL and Time Warner was uh, more like $40 billion of revenue and $10 billion of profit. And so that was a more diversified mix of businesses also was something we thought was important to kind of protect us on the on the downside. So strategically, it made a lot of sense. I think the challenge there, the reason that it struggled and really failed as a merger was not the strategic uh, potential, which was certainly there, 
but the execution. And I've you know cited this quote from Thomas Edison. He said it over a century ago that vision without execution is hallucination. You know, having a good idea is important, but being able to execute that idea is even more important. And that comes down to people and priorities. And you know, we were unable with the combined AOL Time Warner Company to get that side of it right. The assets were there, uh, but we didn't get the people and priorities right. So were there there lessons around execution that stuck with you that you implement even today? Yeah, I think one of there are many many lessons, and some of it was also the timing that you know, just right after we did the merger, the market crashed, and most internet companies went out of business, and the, the stock was in you know yeah. stock was in free fall, and so that that was you know the timing of it you know kind of uh, you know, played into it as well. But I think a lot of it was a sort of a culture clash that people coming from the AOL side of things were viewing the internet as a great opportunity. People coming from the Time Warner side were viewing it a little bit more as a threat. You know, they, they were worried this internet would cannibalize some of their their business and of course there was risk of that but that led to different you know kind of approaches and so it really came down to trust uh, and you know kind of there was not a common vision that the team embraced and was aligned around and you know, I'd seen the success of AOL really was having that clear vision and having a team that was kind of very aligned on it and passionate about it instead of running it as one you know, company it really was run as independent divisions that each were doing their their own thing and there was you know, more of a a bias towards playing defense to protect what was there uh, and make the near-term kind of numbers work and uh, a little less of playing offense to kind of seize the the opportunity. So I think that that was a difficult chapter and certainly uh, uh, difficult for me personally. But having watched that, having been part of that, I realized that, you know, vision without execution is hallucination and realized that ultimately it came down to you know, people, and therefore the the efforts and I've tried to be focused on in the last you know decade or so, whether it be policy issues, working on the you know, the Jobs Act uh, five or six years ago, to jumpstarting our Business Startups Act, or more recently being an advocate for the Investing in Opportunity Act. Uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to you know Democrats and Republicans and trying to build relationships, trying to build goodwill, trying to build trust. So there is more of a willingness to at least listen and perhaps kind of you know buy into things. And in this period too, you've you've noted before how like in in 2000 Vanity Fair named you the number one person in their new establishment of like movers and shakers and then just a couple of years after that the media had kind of turned on you blaming any struggles within Time Warner like mostly on you what did that feel like how did you recover from that when it, it seemed as if public opinion had kind of shifted against you well I didn't enjoy it it was uh, you know, I think the, it was hard to deal with that and the, the Vanity Fair thing was particularly kind of odd because I think it was two years running. I was like number one on their list. And then suddenly I was off the list altogether. It kind of went from being this kind of important person in the in the world to being kind of irrelevant. And you know, I understood that kind of goes with the territory. It's the nature of how these things kind of work. And in terms of the merger itself – I have mixed views on it. You know, I was the architect of the merger. It was my idea. I proposed it to Jerry Levin, who was the then CEO of, of Time Warner. So the idea of, of merging AOL and Time Warner, I'm completely responsible for, and I own that you know, completely. 
know, the execution of that merger, I have a you know somewhat different view on. I I was the chairman of the company, but I did step down as CEO, and so none of the businesses, including AOL, reported to me. And we had you know some big fights in the boardroom about you know what to do, and you know the decision was to go in a in a different direction, which is why ultimately I. You know, decided to step down as as chairman and and leave the board. So I share some of the frustrations around how the the merger was executed. I think there was enormous missed opportunities, and I accept some of that responsibility, but not all of it, because you know, I was not really on point, kind of running it day to day. I certainly accept the responsibility for the idea of the merger because it was indeed my idea. When you left AOL and you resigned from the board at AOL Time Warner. That was back in 05. Like you could have done like a much more traditional path, like maybe go on some boards, start another company or just have even a more standard venture capital firm. But like with Revolution, you it became something where you're you're like traveling the country in a bus, like investing in all of these different cities that are usually overlooked. Like were you just like trying to make things more difficult for yourself? <laughs> no, I, it, it took a little while after I uh, stepped down as CEO to figure out exactly what I want to do. But I, I spent some time with some entrepreneurs, started making some investments and uh, enjoyed that. Just sort of mentoring kind of the next generation of entrepreneurs and learning about other sectors of the economy, things that I hadn't necessarily focused on when I was running uh, AOL, and then started ramping that up. Uh, but, it, you know, definitely the whole idea of, you know, bus tours and the rise of the rest, uh, you know, it just sort of was motivated by a recognition uh, that right now it does matter where you live uh, in terms of whether you have an opportunity to pursue the American dream. That it's crazy to me that 75% of venture capital goes to just three states, you know, California, New York, and Massachusetts, and the other 47 states are fighting over the other 25%. These are big states, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, each get less than 1% of venture capital last year, and California got 50%. So that just doesn't make any sense. There's a fairness aspect to it, but also just a, you know, kind of a opportunity aspect to it. How do you make sure that, that we really are loving the playing field, and, and we really are trying to back entrepreneurs everywhere, you know, across the country, across many sectors of the economy, so that we can continue to be the most innovative entrepreneurial nation in the world. And we can, you know, try to create jobs everywhere, not just in a, in a few places. It's really become a really big movement that has some of the top investors in the country involved. And in, you visited what, like it's 33 cities? Uh, 38 so far. 38, 38 cities at this point throughout the country. Are you motivated by wanting to be at the forefront of a new era, like as you say, the third wave? Is this what's driving you? What is? Yeah, the I think there's motivator? some of that. I, I, I want to be involved in that, and I think there's something I can do to help drive that. I, I, because of my what I've done in the past, I have a a voice and a platform, and I want to do something constructive with it. I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to. You know, be helpful, and so that's a key reason you know why I do it. I you know, recognize that America itself was a startup. You know, 250 years ago, it was just a startup. It was just an idea. This country led the way in the agricultural revolution and led the way in the industrial revolution. More recently, led the way in the technology revolution. And we've gone from this fragile startup nation to the leader of the free world. I want to do what I can to make sure 
we continue to lead, and we're gonna, not going to be able to do that unless we continue to innovate. The Internet now, of course, we take for granted, but in those early days, most people didn't believe that it ever would be a phenomenon. So what are the other ideas out there that some entrepreneur has somewhere in this country that could not only create an interesting company but help create a whole new industry that, that this country can kind of lead the way on? So that's a you know, critical you know, part of this. And you know, they, I've seen with jobs and innovation, entrepreneurship, that is one area where you can bring people together and kind of forge a consensus and find some common ground. So for all those reasons, it's something I'm, I'm uh, super passionate about. I joined you on the Rise of the Rest Tour for Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Louisville, Kentucky. When you're investing in places like this throughout the country, I would imagine that some of the challenge in terms of both pitching it to a city and just bringing in that inclusivity would be when you think of startup jobs, you would think typically people who already have some money, who maybe are highly educated. How do you find ways that it actually does benefit an entire city and doesn't just create like a new, basically benefit the elite class of that city? Well, there's a number of facets to it. First of all, when we talk about backing startups, we're not just talking about tech startups. Obviously, there are many tech startups, but we back nearly 100 you know, companies and a whole variety of different you know, sectors, food companies, clothing companies, all kinds of things, not just tech companies. So that's the first point. The second is to recognize that the startups aren't just creating jobs directly within those companies. The data suggests that for every startup job, there's five other jobs created. It could be, you know, construction jobs for people building homes, or it could be, you know, kind of service economy jobs, restaurants, other kinds of things. So they have a kind of a flywheel effect, and they create other jobs in the community that are critically important. At the same time, and we've said this in really every city we visited, it does require intentionality. It does require making sure that that you really are trying to make sure that you have a diverse mix of entrepreneurs that you're, you're engaged with. There, there have been audiences as I travel around the country where I've looked out, and it's 100% white guys. Last year, over 90% of venture capital went to men, less than 10% to women. Last year, less than 1% went to African Americans. So this is a great entrepreneurial nation. We should be proud of it. But the data suggests it does matter where you live. It does matter what you look like. It does matter who you know. Whether if you have an idea, you know, you really can turn into a company and really have a, a real shot at the American dream. So we have to figure out ways to kind of level that playing field and be more uh, more inclusive. So it's kind of like rethinking the concept of entrepreneurship in America, basically. Yeah. No, it, it, entrepreneurship it takes many forms. And the small business sector uh, is obviously important, accounts for uh, a lot of jobs. Some of those small businesses could end up being big businesses. You know, every Fortune 500 company starts as a startup. So some of those small businesses, if, if they are, you know, kind of have access to capital or mentoring or partnerships or other ways to accelerate their growth, could be big. You mentioned being with us in uh, Chattanooga, the, in the winner of our pitch competition there, Freight Waves, was basically building a Bloomberg data system for the trucking industry. And I didn't know this till I got there, but yeah, you know, as you saw, Chattanooga is actually kind of like the Silicon Valley of trucking. A lot of big trucking companies happen to be in 
Chattanooga. So if you're building a data system, you know, platform for the trucking industry, doesn't it make sense to be in Chattanooga where people understand trucking and the big customers, the big partners are kind of right around the corner? It seems like that's an advantage to you know, Chattanooga. And we're seeing this in other cities as, we, as we're going around the country that they're building on their unique skills. And so it is happening. We just need to tell those stories and, and get more people, you know, understanding what's happening in these communities and backing these entrepreneurs, including the investors, because the capital they need to start and scale their company is harder to get if you're in these what some call flyover country. And as a result, there's a huge brain drain where people grow up in those places, end up leaving. So how do we slow that brain drain? So Keep more people, people, in people the are able to stay where they want to stay. And, and even how do you trigger a boomerang of people left now feel like maybe it's time to come back. Maybe it's time to come home. When you look at your entire career and then where you are now, how do you personally define success? I think it's about impact, and, and I do have a desire to have a broad impact. And so trying to kind of reach more people in more places, whether it be with the, the Internet or more recently with the, the Rise Rest, it, it's trying to have the broadest possible impact. And I want to try to maximize the impact I have. And so I tend to pick bigger problems and try to have a kind of a bigger impact. I recognize when you do that, there are also bigger risks. You know, some of the things we try to do will not be successful. I understand that. But I think, you know, for me, it's how do you make sure you are doing everything you can to make the world a better place and try to you know, kind of lift up as many people and communities as possible. You've spent years mentoring entrepreneurs. It's something that you still regularly do. But is there maybe a go-to piece of advice that you would give to someone who just wants to have a career like yours? It ultimately comes down to people and teams. That entrepreneurship is a is a team sport. It's not about any one person. To, to, you know, the founding CEO tends to get most of the attention, but it really is a team effort. That's certainly the case with with AOL. It's the case with all the companies that that we're involved in as investors. So recognizing that team dynamic and trying to make sure you have the right mix of of skills and perspectives on the team is important. And the other related you know, point, and there's an African proverb by. I love which you want to go quickly, you can go alone. You want to go far, you must go together. Uh, and going far and going together means partnerships. And so that partnership orientation, I think, is very important. It's all about relationships. It yeah, ultimately comes down to you know, people, whether it be the individual people on your team or the people you need to work with to establish partnerships or the people you need to increasingly work with in the third wave that are going to impact policy, regulators, other folks. If you get the people right, I think you know almost anything is possible. If you don't get the people right, I'd argue nothing is possible. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to This is Success from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Before you go, we've got a glimpse at who Steve Case may have been had he pursued a different passion. I almost went into the music business. If I hadn't gone into the, you know, the technology business, I really? was quite smitten in the in the my, you know, high school and even some college years and and you know, did some concert promotion and other other sorts of things. So I you know, I I could have gone into that. Were you in a band? I was in a band, although I I was it was not a 
particularly successful band. What kind of music was it? We had we had two different bands. I was in one was called the the, and the other was called the Vans. And I the was the. I was the the well, that was a pretty good name. Yeah. I was I must admit. <laughs> um, and uh, I was the lead singer, but couldn't really sing. So I decided that was not a great career move. Next week on the show, we've got Refinery29 CEO Christine Barbaric. Initially, the idea of building a media startup sounded like the last thing she'd want to do. But she decided to hear a pitch from her soon-to-be co-founders over drinks. I literally left those margaritas with Philip and Justin, and I was like, oh my god, I have to do this. Subscribe to This Is Success in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to catch that episode and explore our archive. Please leave us a rating and write a review. It helps others find the show. This is Success is a production of Insider Audio.